Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Kathy Grace and Dr. Kenya Wolf with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Hello, everybody. I'm Kathy Grace with Kenya Wolf. We're so glad you're with us today for our podcast, Ed's Up. We have a very engaging and interesting speaker today, and I think that you all will find what he has to say memorable and also uh, some things that give us all an opportunity to think a little bit harder and maybe a little bit smarter on some things. So Tom Hobson, who is known as Teacher Tom, with his social audience, and he's big on uh, social media as well as in his presentations. We're so glad that you're here with us. You're also a, a parent educator and an author. And so we're very glad to have you with us. And you can tell us a little bit about what your beliefs are through your writings and through some of the the stories that you've been able to convey and the conversations you've had with teachers. You work for Woodland Park Cooperative. It's a parent-owned and operated school, and uh, you have a, a very interesting way you describe your uh, pedagogy, your Teacher Tom's Democratic Progressive Play-Based Pedagogy. So that gives us a little bit of a description of maybe of, of what you think about, but I'm going to start with the first question. And as we have talked before, you can answer this or go in another direction because there is no right or wrong. And we're just so thrilled that you're with us. You say you came to teaching through the back door, so to speak. Having enrolled your own child in a cooperative school, could you tell us a little bit about that? All right. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This is a real pleasure to get to talk to you. Uh, And I'm excited to get to share this story. People don't ask me that question much anymore. No, I I had no intention of being in early childhood education. Uh, I came out of school with a degree in journalism. I worked in public relations. I was a freelance writer. I did some advertising. I did, you know, kind of like little junior corporate stuff for for quite a while. And then as I I became a freelance writer, and thankfully, my wife is a good income earner. So uh, she was able to, you know, pay the bills and everything for us. And when we decided to have a child, which was after 10 years of marriage, we decided, okay, this looks like it's going to last. Let's have a baby. We had our daughter and the agreement was I was going to be the stay-at-home parent, which is a great privilege for men, right? Because we don't get to do that very often. And I I understood, you know, from the very start that I had something, uh, I had a lot to learn, right? And I had a lot of, and I had lower expectations in many ways, but I, by nature, am what you would call an introvert in the sense that I get my energy from being alone. And and as much as I love you people, you tire me out. And, and so I really like the stay-at-home aspect of being a parent. That really appealed to me, that idea that I'd have my little baby at home and we would putter around the house in our jammies and and you know cook cook some food and 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 do some household chores and read books and play with toys. But my daughter turned out Josephine turned out to be more like my wife, an extrovert. And before she was even two years old, she would say to me things like, Papa, today, let's do something. Let's go somewhere. <laughs> and so I, you know, so I thought, I don't know what to do. So we just started cobbling together a little social life, how to go into playgrounds and things like that. And while I was at one of these playgrounds, there was a mother there with her her two-year-old son. And she and I said, I said, uh, I told her, you know, my situation. And she said, well, what about preschool? And I asked my mother about that, and I asked my mother-in-law about that, and I asked my wife about that, and all three of these powerful women said to me, no, 
You've got one of the lucky ones. She's got a stay-at-home parent. She doesn't need to be sent for childcare, which is what all I conceived of for preschools. But then I found out, I talked later with this same woman again, and she told me, well, my I get to go to school with my kid. And that's what a cooperative preschool is. And that was really a beautiful idea for me is the idea that I got to go to school with her. So as a stay-at-home parent, in the company with other parents who are in the same situation I was in, which was really um, a big deal. And so these three women, my wife, my mother, and my mother-in-law all said, okay, as long as you go with her. So I started going to preschool with my daughter and we did it for three years. And she, I got lucky. Her teacher um, was a woman named Chris David, who is still teaching is a master teacher, uh, really knew about not only the cooperative model, but also knew a lot about play-based learning and really understood how it worked in a, in a preschool classroom. So it's all I've ever known. And so I always say I got my training and apprenticeship. I have done coursework, but when my daughter was ready to move on to public schools, I just stayed behind uh, because I, I had discovered, and I, this is the way I usually phrase it, I had discovered the world from underneath tables again. I hadn't been underneath the table since I myself was a child. And suddenly I realized the whole world is different from under here. And there's a lot of cool stuff that I'd forgotten and that I hadn't learned. And so for me, it was always a process of learning myself. It felt like a good thing. So that's what got me involved as an educator. Uh, and that's how it got me involved in parent education, because part of the preschool teacher's job in a cooperative is also teaching parents. You teach the whole family rather than just the children. So that's kind of my, my little origin story. That's so fun. Well, I um, actually became aware of your journey through your blog, like many of us. And I felt like I was going along for the ride a lot of the times reading your stories from outdoors or under a table. And your blog has really grown so many readers for over a decade. So why do you think your writing has resonated with so many people? You know, it's that's a, that's a good question. I've never thought about that. I think if I think about what people say to me, they say that a lot of times they'll read a post and they'll say, man, it sounds like, it feels like you're in my head. Uh, I think that's what's resonated is that I try to, it's, it's, it's kind of like, I hate this phrase because it sounds so warlike, but it's like stories from the front lines and from direct experience working with young children and their families. So I would say that's it. I, you know, I, I, I think the other pieces, to be perfectly honest, that, that have worked for me is I've never accepted advertising. I've never done sponsorships. I've always kept it. I've never put bells and whistles. If you look at my blog, Teacher Tom's blog, it is the like the first template that shows up on on Google Blogger. I've done I've added nothing to it. It looks like a brown paper bag. So I think in some ways that's what appeals to people. But I can't tell you. I think people appeal to it. I think part of it too is that I write every single day. And I think I'm the only person doing that in any in any topic. <laughs> Well, I'm just curious if there are blogs that resonated more that you get fan. Do you get fan mail? I don't know what they would call that more. Well, kind of you get lots of responses on. by email or lots of comments on Facebook or, you know, that kind of thing, or lots of likes on or whatever they call them on Instagram, lots of hearts on Instagram. I think the topics that people tend to really respond to are the ones that are really full-throated support for play-based learning. I think that's what I'm known for. That's what people seem to share the most and get the most enthusiastic about. Get lots of amens for that kind of thing. I have to ask, do you have much of any pushback from uh, people who in today's world with emphasis in uh, the whole idea of 
assessing children and and looking at certain things that are not necessarily, I guess you could say, related to the outcomes of play-based, even though they very much are. And if you do get that, do you have any responses? Because we run into that consistently with a lot of the stuff that we do. But I know what you're saying, but the school makes me, but the parents won't. And so I'm sure you get that too. So what would be your answer or what is your answer to stuff like that? Well, I get most of that secondhand. Like you said, people will say to me, God, I agree with everything you're saying. And I know you're right. It's what I learned in school. But the parents want my two-year-old to you know, get some formal literacy instruction. Or, but my, you know, the the school district says that we have to have them have this level of numeracy before blah, blah, blah. I guess my my main response is that what we're doing in play-based learning and, and allowing especially preschoolers the opportunity to have those an authentic childhood of play is really what the science tells us. And the science has been telling us this about learning for well over a hundred years, right? We go back to John Dewey and Lev Vygotsky and, and Maria Montessori and and Jean Piaget and all of the early, you know, early childhood people like that who were taking a look and seeing that the human animal is designed to learn through its own curiosity, right? To learn to learn that way. And past generations have I felt feel really have understood this better too, because uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that nobody went to preschool. You know, that was that just didn't exist really. I mean, even when I was a boy. I was born in 1962. Uh, I don't remember any of the kids going to childcare or anything like that. And largely that's because we had lots of one income families. So there was, as the case in my family, we had a chance to have a stay at home parent. The thing I like most is to tell the story of my own childhood and to get people connected to their own childhoods, especially people who are, you know, 50 plus people who are objecting to what we're doing. I say, you know, listen, you know, when I was a boy, as young as four years old, mom wouldn't say, go, you know, you're, she'd say, you're driving me crazy, go outside. And she'd just send me outside. She'd close the door behind me. And she didn't expect to see me again until she called me. And that was the experience most people had. And so then I, I loved asking people to share with me a beautiful moment from your own childhood. Almost always, 99% of the time, they were outdoors. They were unsupervised. They were with other kids. They never talk about school. Never, that's never one of their beautiful moments. Um, they usually don't talk about toys. They usually talk about doing real things like, you know, going out into the woods and finding berries or climbing on the roof of a garage and jumping off. Often there's a, there's there's risk involved, something that their parents wouldn't allow them to do. And they chuckle and you laugh and you see them just glow with this idea of the, and the usually the other piece is that there's not a schedule. Usually those beautiful moments involve just having lots of time. And once you can get person in the, a person in that glow, then I say, that's just what I want for your kids. And, you know, there is no evidence that I've ever come across that early literacy, early uh, formal literacy instruction, formal numeracy instruction leads to better outcomes in the long run. In fact, what I've seen seems to indicate that uh, early formal literacy instruction Gives yeah, get, they they'll give a preschooler a little head start, but by the time they're eight, there's no head the head start has disappeared. By the time they're fifteen, they're reading less for pleasure and with lower comprehension than their counterparts who are allowed to wait until seven, eight years old before they started getting that instruction. It's why nations like Finland and other countries whose whose systems we look up to wait until first grade before they even introduce these kinds of academic style concepts. Well, if I could follow up uh, with yeah. two things. 
that you mentioned because I can hear some of the folks as they hear you talk. Uh, I grew up in the country, in the real country. So my activities, as you just described, were very similar. I used to walk the railroad tracks, which I'm sure would send people up the wall at this point. But I was way out in the country. But my point is, we have a lot more concerns now in neighborhoods about safety. And so the hesitancy for your child to go outside and play is based a lot on neighborhoods where you live. What is the situation with crime and and what we see going on? That's number one. Number two is I didn't, there wasn't even in my world a computer, a cell phone. We barely had a television set because I'm a good bit older than you. Uh, and we didn't get a TV set until I was three. And it was restricted to just what three channels we could get out in the country. And so my main experience with that was Winky Dink, which I'm sure you've not heard of, and Miss Francis and Ding Dong School. And so, you know, that was my education, if you would, through technology. I did attend a kindergarten, which was 12 miles away, and my mother drove me for that purpose. But what do you say today for the the world that you and I both in Kenya all hung on to and that we now have, I guess you could say, had some major uh, barriers that we'd have to overcome for some of those same memories to occur? Right. So uh, the first thing I just want to address is, you know, I think objectively, statistically, the world is not more dangerous now than it was when we were young, uh, but we know a lot more about it. I think if you look at the statistic crime statistics, almost all the major crimes are down, especially even crimes against children. Since the 60s and 70s, for example, the crime rates are much lower. But that doesn't change the fear, right? We still have the fear out there. And I think that's really what we deal with. And so I, you know, I can't, and of course, there are some neighborhoods where you can't, you're not going to let your kids go run around by themselves. Um, most neighborhoods are relatively safe, but you know, there's laws now. There's you're going to have CDC on your doorstep if you send your four year old outside. So, I don't think we're going to change that in our lifetime. I mean, it, that, that's a long game. And people like Lenore Skenazi with uh, Free Range Kids and Light Grow is somebody who's out there working on that piece. And she and I talk a lot about this. You know, the, um, the fact that you know the dangers aren't as big as people think, but there's real world consequences to having the fear, and that is that we can't let our kids roam like that. Uh, so for me, what I like to say is that's why our preschools need to be play-based because we don't have that neighborhood opportunity anymore. Most people don't. I mean, I love, I run, I talk about this a lot and often I'll hear somebody say, well, my neighborhood's like that. And I'm just like, yes, yes. That's the best thing in the world to hear that there are still neighborhoods like um, where they feel comfortable letting their kids roam. Uh, but so let's, let's think, okay, where are the children? They are in our settings. Most of the children that we see are going to spend virtually 100% of their childhoods under adult supervision, uh, which is, I think, a real change in, in historical context. I mean, they're just, they are, there's always an adult there. They tell them they're doing it wrong to not let them take a risk that they have calculated that they want to try to take. 
I don't think we've reduced the number of broken bones, but we think we are. <laughs> so I see that's number one. As I say, that's why our schools need to become the places where children sense have that sense of freedom to explore, to ask and answer their own questions, to make some mistakes, to take some risks. Because we know that risk-taking, without without a certain amount of risk-taking, the prefrontal cortex doesn't develop properly. Uh, so children need this. And plus, if they don't get the chance of assessing their own risks when they're young, they're going to run out as 21-year-olds, and they're going to do this even stupider things than 21-year-olds tend to do. Um, the second piece is technology. I, I agree with you. Gosh, I had the same thing. In technology, um, I had we had three channels, and... Uh, and there was very few, there were very few things on for kids. I mean, there was Batman in the afternoon, and then there was the old, uh, you know, the the Three Stooges, you know, clips and things like that that were already old by the time we saw them. And then sometimes at night there might be a show on, um, but TV was not something that we were necessarily driven to because most of it was really boring. Most of it was news programs or or cooking shows and things that maybe you know, our parents liked, but we didn't care for. Uh, I, but I think one of the th- fundamental things that's changed to me is that instead of saying, you're driving me crazy, go outside, what are parents left with? You're driving me crazy, go watch a TV show or play a video game. So that is the, that's what we have. And what's really interesting to me, and Peter Gray, uh, the researcher and the author of the book, uh, Free to Learn, what he writes about is the fact that he sees evidence that what children are doing, because it's the only place they get to go now is the internet that is unsupervised. That's why they go there. And that's what they're doing. They're playing. They're seeking their risks. They're engaging in uh, asking and answering their own questions. It's it's why the internet becomes dangerous. That's the one place they have left to just really, you know, get into a culture of childhood. So anyway, I think that, and I do think that, it, that there is uh, what we do with technology that, you know, that's all neither here nor there. I think that's just, I think that's probably true, but not useful information. I think what we do with technology, though, is, is children are spending more time indoors and they're not getting the physical exercise, the physical physical exertion that they otherwise would have that we need to develop properly as our bodies. You know, we know from neuroscience that we, we it's not brain and body, two separate things. The brain and body is all one thing. And if we don't exercise the body, we're not exercising the brain. And so children need that opportunity to be outside. And it can't just be another adult-led physical education class. They need a time to go out there and hurl their bodies around the way they feel, the way they're driven to. I think it's an ongoing challenge for uh, young parents and the parents-to-be because just if you go out to eat in most restaurants where there's children at a table, uh, we had conversations in in my day, and now everybody has their own cell phone or their own iPad, Mm -hmm. and they're just all just working away with not yeah. necessarily any conversation, you know, going on at the, at the table or between the adults and the children or the children. Yeah, well, I think that's a societal problem. I think that's all of us are in that. I mean, this getting out your phone and scrolling endlessly, it's one of the things we have to consciously avoid doing. Uh, tell ourselves, I'm going to give my, in fact, what I found, my, the only thing I schedule in my life right now are podcast interviews and when I'm going to be on social media. As I tell myself, I'm giving myself one hour a day and that's it. Because otherwise you get sucked in and young children do, adults do, everybody does. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I love about your blog is that you talk a lot about and, and just talk about what you've learned from children yourself. And there's so much that we can learn from children. What are the, some of the things that that you've learned? 
Well, I think the great blessing they give all of us is I, I, I like to phrase it this way because I, uh, there was, um, and it, it's, it sounds a little, you know, maybe woo woo, but I feel like we're born with certain kinds of knowledge. And then as we get older, we lose that knowledge. And one of the things that a baby has, for example, that, that we tend to forget as adults is the, the importance, the value of living in this moment. Right. Because a baby's not born understanding the future or the past. A baby is born and experiences the world right now. And even young children, the preschoolers who are with, you know, they tend not to spend a lot of time feeling guilty about the past, which is a wonderful thing. They tend not to spend a lot of time anticipating the future, which is a wonder. It puts them right there present. So I've always said one of the greatest gifts that I get from young children, especially when I'm in the classroom with them, is that time stands still that I get to be in the center of time rather than constantly in the process of looking forward and back and doing all that stuff. And I think that's a piece of deep wisdom wisdom that young children bring to us. I think another thing I've learned from children is, is that, and, and people, this is something people disagree with me all the time, but the truth is, is I find children are much more likely to listen to one another than adults are. Uh, most adults, even right now, when I'm listening to you, you're asking me these questions. And of course, it's a different setting because it's a podcast and you're asking me questions I got to answer. But while you're talking, I'm sitting here th- re- thinking about how I'm going to respond rather than truly listening. And I think young children, they truly listen to one another in ways that we've forgotten because they're not always focused on responding. They're focusing on understanding, which is the heart, you know, the heart of all learning is just seeking understanding. And it also gives them new perspectives. That's the other piece I've really understood that I gave that metaphor of being under the table. That perspective that they give us is a perspective that if we don't have children in our lives, we forget. I mean, um, you know, uh, Kathy, you mentioned being in a restaurant with children. I mean, when I was a boy, parents didn't buy, they didn't try to take kids to a restaurant because they knew what we would do. We would want to run around. We didn't want to sit there and have a conversation. I was three years old. I wanted to go sit down. I wanted to eat the candy. And then I went to get outside and start, you know, or run around the restaurant to go look in the fish tank or whatever happened to be there because, you know, moving was something that you have to do when you're young. So for me, what we've, what, what's happened though is we've, the places you could go were places more akin to taverns, right? Where it was okay for people to be up running around as if those old British taverns that you always hear about. That was those those are designed for whole families to be at. I don't know if they do it anymore, but I know the old methodology was like that. We increasingly we've moved children out of the center of life, right? And I often say that you know now we've got them to the point where they spend their almost their whole waking hours in these little pink collar ghettos, where the rest of the world doesn't see them, we don't hear them, and I think we suffer as a society because children aren't in the center of everything. Children should be right there where we are. So we should have child friendly restaurants. They should be a place where kids go. That children should be in every library, every public space. There's nothing that drives me crazier than when people, you know, complain about a baby crying on an airplane. It's like that kid is speaking for me. We're confined in this little box. And, and, you know, if I could, I'd be crying too. It's awful. And, you know, the one place I think the little, the iPads and the screens are, are appropriate is on an airplane. Because it's a, you're trapped. You have nowhere else to go. Everybody turns on their screens or opens a book, as you know, as Kenya and I might do uh, when we get on an airplane. you got to do something to distract yourself from this place you have no choice about. So I do would like to see, I mean, I all the time I think this. I, I feel sad that children are not considered full citizens. They're not fully present in our day-to-day lives. 
because past generations, everybody grew up with kids around. Everybody, when they were 12, helped care for care for the kids. Uh, when the babies got older, you had grandparents and you had aunts and uncles and everybody else was participating in the in the, child, the important project of rearing children, which, as Alison Gopnik talks about, is the central project of every civilization that's ever existed. And you can judge a society, I believe, by how they treat the children and where the children are. So I'm thinking, you know, when I objectively look at what we do and we send the kids off to these little places where they're isolated in age like groups all day long. They suffer from not being around more adults and more real life things. Um, but I think the rest of us suffer because we don't get to see the amazing creativity, the divergent thinking that young children are capable of. Um, one of the things, just Kenya, back to what you were asking before, is we got the, um, I don't know if you've heard read about this, but NASA has this uh, test they give. You've heard about this. You, this you give children, they give to all their new employees and they're looking for creative genius is what they say. So that's divergent thinking. And this test, and what they found is that typically about 2% of their uh, job applicants qualify as creative geniuses. Uh, This was back in, I think, 97 or so. They gave this test to five-year-olds. And they found that 98% of the five-year-olds tested as creative geniuses. This is what we lose when we don't have children in the middle of the world. Yeah, absolutely. We are educating the creativity and the genius out of them. Yeah, we're not allowing it to continue, right? We're we're teaching them the cult of right answers yes. uh, rather than just thinking. <laughs> and unfortunately, the future is going to be about creative thinkers. And that's exactly a real concern of mine. You travel around the world speaking to early childhood educators and parents, and you share your views on early childhood education, play, pedagogy. What have you learned from your travels? And have you found some countries are more in step, like they're getting it? You mentioned some uh, Finland and so forth. And what would you say that has been your main two or three lessons learned from your worldly travels? Well, I just got back from Iceland, uh, where I have been going on a regular basis now and visiting. I visited a lot of schools there and spent time there. And I think they've come as close to getting it right as any place else in the world. I, I also really admire what they're doing in New Zealand. Uh, so those are the two nations that I put up on my early childhood pedestals. I'm not talking about elementary school and uh, higher levels of education. I've only done that. I think the thing that I find really special in Iceland is how much they respect the professionalism of the educators. Uh, because they do. They have a national curriculum like every, you know, well, maybe not every Every nation, we don't have a national curriculum, but we have state and, you know, we have certain curriculum that are that are standardized in a way. Um, and theirs is very play based. And when I was there, I met a couple of people who were who are currently working on the revision of their and they said it's going to be more play based going forward. Uh, but every time I visit a school, I'm struck by the fact that each one is completely different than the one that I visited before. They focus on different things based on the children's interest, based on the educator's interest, and based on the family's interests that are enrolled in that school, based on the community's interests and what the local um, community is about with our local industries, things like that. So each one of the schools, you can go to one school funded by the same government, uh, run by the same thing that is a Reggio Emilia uh, pro, uh, based program. The very next one will be a forest school. The next one will be, you know, will be more of a cooperative model where the parents are more involved. The next one will be, you know, they they focus on high scope or one of the other uh, models that we all know about. 
And what I love about this is these teachers, they stay for a long time. They stay in their jobs because they are trusted to enact the curriculum in the way they see fit, understanding that play stands at the center of it. So that to me is the one thing I've really learned is this idea of trusting educators to create a a learning environment that suits that particular community. Because I do think that that standardization of curriculum is a real enemy of learning. I think it gets in the way. I mean, I've always said my school, one of the things we did was, you know, there were, I think there were 35 breweries within walking distance of my school. And some of my families even owned those breweries and many of them worked in those breweries. So maybe other schools couldn't do this, but we took field trips. I took two, three, four, and five-year-olds to visit breweries to learn how beer was made because this was an important part of our neighborhood, our culture. I'm not saying that everybody should go out and go to breweries. I'm saying it was important for us. In fact, we were growing hops on our playground. We were doing all the things that you would do. And we actually had a group of fathers who were going to teach the children how to brew their own beer, uh, which you know would, would be a no-go in a lot of places. But in our, at our neighborhood, it was fine. Um, the other th- I, I think, and I did mention New Zealand, and I want to point out to them, I would recommend to everybody out there, um, if you ever want to read uh, a really beautiful early childhood curriculum, the Tefariki, which is their beautiful. national curriculum, is it's gorgeous. And it's written, it's written first in Maori and also in English. And they're not translations of each other. They are actual written documents, each one, and they and all the children are learning Maori, all the teachers learn Maori and English. It's a true bi- a true attempt to be bicultural. Um, and the the beauty of that is they talk about the the woven mat. That's what Tefariki refers to as the woven mat um, of the the different strands. And so they spend a lot of time uh, creating a real balance for the young children. And the other piece that I just love so much is most of the early childhood settings down there. You know, you talked about assessments before. Um, assessments are done by what are what are called learning stories. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but basically. Uh, the way these work from the time the child is a baby, uh, the educators, uh, first of all, they're given the time to do this, are just going to write stories to the child about things that they, positive things, things you'd, I saw today you climbed a tree and you were so proud because you got up to the third branch and you'd been trying to get to the fourth branch. And I bet next time you're going to get there. This is the assessment because and these stories stay with the children all the way through schooling. These and, and teachers keep adding to it. The t- when the, once the children are old enough to, they can add themselves to their own stories. They take the stories home. Their parents and grandparents add to these stories. And what the, what it does is it focuses on strengths, not deficits. Because so often, what assessments are about is focusing on you know what the child needs to work on, you know what they're failing at. And we know from psychology that what we focus on grows. So when we focus on deficits, that's what we're going to, that's what we're growing. Deepak Chopra, some of you may be familiar with, some of your listeners may be familiar with him. Um, he has this great um, thing, he, uh, line that I'd love to quote. He says, you know, if you have a child who is poor at mathematics and good at tennis, most people would hire a math tutor. I would hire a tennis coach. And I really think that that, to me, is what, what is beautiful about that approach to early childhood. So I've really learned that when we focus on strengths, we create motivated learners, children who feel good about themselves and their capacity to learn and their intelligence. 
uh, because they are able to work to their strengths, not their weaknesses. And I think that's a real flaw that we have a lot of times in assessment is we focus just on, you know, what's wrong with the kids. That's beautiful. And I, I will always treasure my days that I've spent in a New Zealand preschool. One of my favorite things was watching the children go in and out of the sliding glass doors as the classroom was both indoor, outdoor, pretty much all year round, which was really nice. And they got to choose what they wanted to be. Well, Teacher Tom, you've published two books, and now you are embarking on a podcast. I am. So tell us a little bit about that. All right. Well, I mean, my books really are because people, you ask me if I get fan mail. Um, it seemed like about once a week, somebody would write to me and say, when are you writing a book? And, you know, I've been writing this blog since 2009, writing every single day, and I'm doing the best writing I can. I'm not saying it's all perfect. I was, you know, mentioning before we went on, before we started recording that if you go back and look at what I wrote in 2009, there's some embarrassing things, things I disagree with, but I've left them up because they're part of my journey as a learner, as a, as a process of learning. And so I, people kept saying, well, when are you going to write a book? And I'd say, I'm already giving it away for free. Why would you want a book? But, pe- you know, after a while, people convinced me. So really, my books are ba- basically both of them are best ofs from the blog. So I say this all the time, you know, buy the book if you want something on your bedside, if you want the ones that I've picked out as as my favorite ones. It's not a mistake. I named them Teacher Tom's first book and Teacher Tom's second book. And guess what the name of the third book will be? Uh, (laughs) um, So the books, you know, to me, that's, you know, they're great for people who want to give them as gifts and things like that. But to me, the books were really just an offshoot of the blog. They were just because people, there's some of us who want the paper thing. You see behind, well, you can't see behind me because there are people are listening, but I have a lot of books in my life and sounds like Kenya does too. And so the, the podcast in a way is a similar thing. I've been doing some, you know, when COVID hit, a lot of us had to start doing stuff online and that was not a place and that I was particularly comfortable. As I mentioned before, I'm kind of intuitively a, a, an introvert. Uh, maybe I'm a high functioning introvert, but I'm an introvert. And so the, the idea of going online was really nerve wracking for me, but people kept saying, oh, Tom, I want to hear more of your voice. I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, and a few years ago, we started doing um, Teacher Tom's Play Summit, which we would get together, you know, 25 early childhood educators and other other thought, you know, thought leaders from around the world. And I would interview them. Um, and I really learned that that was really fun. And people said they got a lot out of it. And I really enjoyed it. And I learned a great deal. It's amazing. I'm sure you learn a great deal doing your own podcast. And so um, we decided um, that we were going to start doing a podcast as of January. And that's really the goal is I want to, the metaphor that I'm using to think about it is that, uh, and this was given to me by an educator named Hopi Martin, who's an Ojibwe educator from uh, the Toronto area. And I was interviewing him for one of these uh, summits. And I think this was off camera. He said to me, um, you know, the way my people look at it is that there's, it's like there's a campfire. And you can tell me about the campfire. You're looking at the campfire and I say, what about, tell me about the campfire. And you're going to tell me, you know, everything you can see and, and and feel and smell and everything about that campfire. He said, but then I've got to ask the person sitting next to you about the campfire. And before I'd understand, I understand a little bit more. Then I got to ask the next person and the next person until I ask everybody who's sitting around that fire before I can really understand that campfire. He said, then even after we do this, 
we have to ask the birds in the trees and we have to ask the animals in the forest and the worms underground about that fire before. And each time we suddenly realize that we never really fully can ever fully understand that campfire till we get all the perspectives. And so that's kind of how I'm looking at this podcast is I want to start putting together. I'm trying to find people whose perspectives are much different than mine. I probably will find people I agree with, but mostly I'm looking for people to interview who make me think, who make me doubt, um, who cause me to do some some critical thinking about my own assertions and beliefs and and what I think I know. Because uh, there was one time when it was common knowledge the earth was flat. <laughs> that was the scientific truth. Um, and so I know that the things we believe are concrete and bedrock today we will discover in the future are not the truth. And I want to just keep going toward learning more to get another perspective. Because each time I add a new perspective to mine, those aren't rival perspectives. Those make my perspective bigger and stronger. And so I hope to do that through the podcast. Well, that sounds amazing. I can't wait until we get the information about your podcast and the name and when it goes up. So Well, it's going to be called Teacher Tom's Podcast, and the goal right now is to have it come out in February. If you have any thoughts for Teacher Tom, he's got a blog, and so you can check him out, and I'm sure that you will then be able to take full advantage of more tidbits of his wisdom. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks for letting me have some time with you. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. If you have an early education topic you'd like to discuss, let us know about it at edsup at olemiss.edu. The Ed's Up podcast is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.